0: On She Goes, the podcast is brought to you by Travel Portland. Explore all that Portland has to offer, from their bustling restaurant zine to their breathtaking waterfalls and hiking trails. Check out travelportland.com for more information on how you can experience Portland.
1: Hi there. Welcome to the podcast from On She Goes, a travel site for all women of color. I'm your host, Amina Sow. For those of us who are citizens of the world, the question, where are you from, is not always an easy one to answer. I talked to Heaven Nigatu and Natasha Nyanin about the connection between travel and home. Plus, you'll hear from filmmaker Mitra Banshahi and more jet-setting women. First up, let's bring Heaven into the studio. Heaven co-hosts one of my absolute favorite podcasts, Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Well, Heaven, uh, you were born in Ethiopia. How old were you when you moved to the United States? I was five years old. Really? I didn't move to the States until I was... 18. So like I don't you know it's like I don't even have a memory from 5. Like what was that like?
2: <laughs> I mean I don't really either uh besides like photos and stuff.
1: Is there like a photo of like that day or that like kind of era that really sticks out to you?
2: Oh man, yeah. One of our first days in America. Pr- probably the first one cuz I have this balloon and I'm just looking so grumpy like okay, what's good with America? Why are we here? And my sister was next to me with like a balloon and a smiling face with flowers. <laughs> like, America, let's go. <laughs> what was your relationship
1: like with Ethiopia when you were growing up?
2: I feel like there's like the classic kind of pushing away from everything your parents force on you. So like culturally, like not wanting to do stuff. And then there's the phase where you're like, you're exploring and you're interested and you actually want to hear some history. <laughs> And then you come to appreciate it and you're like, oh, I got to go back to the homeland, buy some stuff, <laughs> read some books, learn about Ethiopian jazz. But like when
1: you were growing up, you like ate the food and, it, you know, like it was very much like a part of your life.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I feel like uh, northern Virginia, D.C. area, for those unfamiliar, Ethiopians run that town. <laughs> 100%. So, yeah. <laughs> So there's just there's a a point where I went to a 7-Eleven in D.C. and they had like our food, our injera. Like that's how pervasive we are. We are as a people. (laughs) So I was definitely like all up in it. I, I felt like that was my normal. When was the first time that you went back to Ethiopia? The first time was in middle school. I was probably like 13, you know those angsty years. Did you feel like when you
1: were, you know, like at that time like you were going back home or did Virginia feel like home home at that point and you were going back to the home of your parents?
2: Mm, I don't feel like I had a strong sense of like one place was my home. It felt more like a trip to visit people than like longing for the homeland and we finally make it, you know. But I do as I get older I think feel more of the like homelandy like longing. Not to live there, but just, like, the the fondness and, like, even a nostalgia for it.
1: I don't know where my home is. Like, for me, my home is always, like, where I live right now. Mm. because I grew up, like, my parents were diplomats, like, we traveled everywhere. Like, I always joke that, like, home is where the Wi-Fi connects automatically. Like, that's where my home is. That's where my home is. (laughs) And so, you know, like, I don't think about home in that sense, right, where I'm like, it's a place that I have to settle down, or it's the place that my people are from. I'm just like, who knows where life will take me.
2: That's beautiful. I think the first time I came to New York is the first time I had the feeling of, like, this is home. What was it about New York? I don't know. I I had been there, like, a day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was like you saw an Elmo in Times Square and you were like, this is it.
2: This is it. <laughs> I Yeah, it was just one of those, like, classic starry-eyed kid come into the city kind of things. Even my family used to joke all the time when I was, like, a kid that, like, you know, uh, she's going to go off to New York and, you know, do her little thing, whatever. <laughs>
1: I know, but I, I don't know. I think that that's, like, beautiful and kind of prophetic, right, in the sense that, like, you are an ambitious person and your family recognize that. But also, that's probably, like, the first place that you moved to that you had chosen for yourself, right?
2: Yeah. Ooh, I hadn't thought about that.
1: Like, you'd, like that's where you decided you wanted to go. It wasn't like your family made you or you had to go on this, like, weirdo side trips or, like, you're the captain of your own ship now.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. Heaven, where can people find your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at heavenrants, which is a thing that I do regularly. H-E-A-V-E-N-R-A-N-T-S. All of my social media is the exact same because, like, who has the time to think of original things per medium? <laughs> Heaven, you are a delight and a treat. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my God. Amina, thank you. Bye. Cheers. That
1: was Another Round co-host, Heaven Nigatu. Now it's time for another round of the 3 H's with Melissa Valle. This episode, she's keeping us healthy. When it comes to staying healthy, water is essential. You want to make sure that you're hydrated and feeling good on vacation, not queasy and unsettled. Therefore, knowing exactly where it is safe to drink the water is key. Do the research before you travel. In some countries, you shouldn't drink the water under any circumstances and need to stick to bottled water. Be aware of icing your drinks, swallowing water and brushing your teeth, and other things we may overlook in our routine. In other countries, the water may be safe enough to drink using a bottle with a small filter, such as a bobblet, which I've found really helpful abroad. Thanks as always for all your guidance, Melissa. Now, filmmaker Mitra Banshahi takes us to Iran.
3: I cannot be the voice of of a culture and people that I don't know. I'm Mitra Machai, and I'm making a short film called The Exiles, and it's about uh, my personal experiences in Iran when I traveled there three years ago. At times I felt strange documenting Iranian people, and I I didn't want to come up with some sort of idea or stereotype or put my perception onto a country that I don't know. I decided I wanted to travel to Iran because I had only been there once before, and that was when I was nine years old. And then the second time, I was 31 years old, and um, there was a huge gap. My experience of Iran as a nine-year-old was... I don't want to say traumatic, but my experience was not the best. So I went um, during my summer vacation with my mother and my sister. And at the age of nine, you have to start wearing the head job. So it's the head um, scarf. And that to me was very, uh, it, it was just very different. And it was something that was, Hard for me to accept. I didn't like going outside and playing and having to cover my head or have, and it was, it's the summers are very hot there and I'd have to wear long pants and, you know, long shirts and it felt very restrictive. I was at a formative age where I could realize all these things but not really understand why they happened or the history of the country or how most people didn't want this to happen. Those things hadn't yet formed and I didn't have that knowledge. So I just thought of it kind of as a not-so-fun place. So I I didn't really want to go back. Once I started seeking some more knowledge and learning more about the country, I realized my perceptions as a nine-year-old were, first of all, carrying over to my adulthood. And secondly, pretty wrong. So I think I waited until I was at an age where I could deal with all these, this internal conflict and external conflicts. The first place I went was Tehran, which is the main capital. It's a crazy, bustling city. It's like maybe 10 times more intense than New York City there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of smog. And I remember not knowing how to cross the street because they don't necessarily have crosswalks. Um, And my two aunts would help me and lead me as we sort of swerved in and out of all the cars that would race by. I was there during the elections of twenty thirteen. It was the, the the election where Ahmadinejad would be done. So people were very excited about him leaving office because he had really messed stuff up. The day the results were announced, my cousin and I were in Tehran and we were out and about at a cafe and we found out that Rohani, who was one of the presidential nominees, who was pretty moderate and he was a reformist, he won. And when we heard that, we could hear people out in the streets. So then, I, my cousin at the time was only 15, and I was in charge of her and I was like, we need to go out into the streets. People were marching towards one of the squares, one of the major squares in Iran called Vanak Square. And they were marching and singing and sort of singing songs of protest. Singing about not wanting the hijab anymore, singing about wanting political prisoners freed. And we joined them. And um, we kept on marching, and I remember in that moment, it felt like now I really knew what and who Iranians were and it was a really beautiful moment to just be there out with everybody, and everybody was on the same page, and there was just this air of of hope and of change and and there was also the sense of freedom and expression that i hadn't seen before so i felt really really lucky to be there and to see the the people of iran how they haven't been seen in our in western eyes or even in how the government wants iran to be portrayed so that was a really really touching moment and i just remember tearing up and My aunties were tearing up, and my cousin was, and it was very beautiful. When I returned home, I felt like things had changed, and my idea of my family in Iran and being Iranian totally changed. (laughs) (laughs) They made me feel at home, and they showed me around, and they showed me... The Iran that they knew. Oh, really? Yeah. And that they loved, and the Iran that was different to them, too, after the revolution. I think Iran to me is not quite home yet, but I don't think I know what home is anymore, which I think is better. I think it's better not to be rooted in just one place. And I don't think I was ever rooted just in the U.S. and I don't think I was rooted ever just in Iran, but now I feel like I have roots in both places.
1: You just heard from Mitra Banshahi. Keep an eye out for her upcoming documentary, The Exiles. We've gone all over the world with Ashley and Rosie. This time, they're reminiscing over one of their favorite vacation spots, Whistler, British Columbia.
4: Rosie decides that we have reached the time in this relationship. relationship. Yes, Yes. that we are going to be skiers. No, we were going to be snowboarders. snowboarders. That we were going to be snowboarders. She's like, babe, we're going to Whistler. And so we decided that that's what we were going to do. And to get to Whistler, you either fly into Seattle or you fly into Vancouver. And then drive, you know, to Whistler. Mm -hmm. So I think we flew into Vancouver. We get in, check in, and we're like, you know. And the thing about skiing is that you can tell who skis and who doesn't. It's like the one automatic. Automatically, (laughs) like there is there is no faking it, right? Like no amount of I bought my goggles and like threw them against the wall to look like they're you know broken. It's not like the pool where you can sit on the side (laughs) of the mountain. No, like Like, you know, like either you're getting in the chairs that go to the top of the mountain or you're like on the bunny slope. Like there is no,
5: (laughs) there's no faking it. Yeah, there's no no faking it.
4: it. So you like pull up. I mean, and the cool thing about people in Canada is it's true they're super nice. So no one was gonna assume that we don't ski. So it was very much like, oh hey, like which mountain are you going to? And we're like, you know, we haven't decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> we like Whistler or Black. O-? Wait, so we decided wait. we were gonna take a class. We were like, that's probably a little classier than just like getting on the on our, you know, grabbing the equipment and then just looking foolish. <laughs> so we decide that we were going to take a snowboarding class. So we meet our instructor the next day, and she's like 22. You know, you could tell she probably had, like, just finished smoking, like, just very, like, hey. Oh, my God, hey. yeah, snowboard instructor from Australia, all, yeah, all hey, stoners. Like, I've yes. been here for seven months. Like, it's cool. Just put your snowboard on. And I'm like, oh. And so, you know, we're trying to get up on the snowboard. And it's evident that, like, it's not natural to have two feet strapped to one board. <laughs> it,
5: it is not. not. I may or may not have worn the appropriate belt. Let's just say that. and my pants were constantly falling down (laughs) so much so that I was spending most of my time on my ass in the snow right and so my ass was getting numb and I could not at one point I could not tell whether my like when I was mooning the whole mountain because my ass was numb. She was mooning the
4: entire mountain. And
5: so um, <laughs> I, leaned, I leaned back at Ash and was like, babe, look at me. I'm standing up. i like, your pants and are down. And she was like, your pants are all the way down. <laughs> and and your ass listen. is hanging out. Like not just your crack. Your ass is hanging out. So that's
4: why oh, yeah. Rosie wears so, overalls. That's why I wear onesies. To
5: this day, I wear onesie overalls whenever but
4: listen, I ski. You know, when one snowboard door closes, <laughs> a ski door opens. <laughs> so we went back the next year and we were like, you know what? Snowboarding was not for us. Yes. Right? I'm not going to be But you just one lesson and, and it. Didn't that was we, we just knew. We
5: never went back to the mountain that whole time. Right. I love
4: this. But <laughs> the next year, we went back and took a ski class and got it. And we were like, you better see us on this mountain. Like, <laughs> so like <laughs> parallel turning, like, we were like good. Like, yeah. we were legitimately good, and we paid for the instructor for the whole week. We would, you know, go up on the mountain, and we'd always come down for lunch. And on this one day that we had our instructor, and he was like, hey, you guys are ready to, like, really ski a lot of the runs on this mountain. And, like, greens on, you know, greens and Whistler are, like, blues, and some blacks elsewhere. I'm I'm impressed. Okay, okay, they're not blacks, but Okay, but definitely blues. Okay, I will give you that. (laughs) And so I was like, hey, you know, Steve, you know, our instructor, like, what time are we going down for lunch? And he's like, oh, no, we're going to ski over to a restaurant on the mountain and I was like, oh. Listen, all my life. Like, all and my when we life, skied into that restaurant, like skied into the restaurant, skied up to I was, was like, we had it. Listen, <laughs> no. all
5: my life I wanted that moment. Like we had like, made it. <laughs> it was Anyway, so now that is if you want to catch us for Christmas, we are in Whistler. Ah, yes. uh,
1: I love those two women so so much.
0: Pack your bags. It's me, Anaya, and I'm about to take you around the world. This week, I'm talking about New York, New York. Have you ever decided on a place to live because it was a hub? Hey, crazier reasons have been chosen. I'm a native New Yorker and I love that there are international flights coming in and out of this city every day. So if you're in New York for an extended labor on your way to Europe, the Caribbean, or South America, here are three things you should do. Have a delicious pizza by the slice. Yep, they still exist. They're a bit more expensive than they used to be, but they're so good, so fresh, and still have that scorching hot cheese that burns the roof of your mouth because you can't wait. I'm talking about pizza by the slice and not that sketchy dollar joint stuff that you see in Midtown. Old school Italian pizzerias. Now to find those, you'll have to venture into real New York neighborhoods. I'm quite torn. I'm a Brooklyn girl and my two favorites are Sal's Pizzeria in Cobble Hill and Roscoe's in Crown Heights. Check them both out and walk around the neighborhoods while you're at it. Sign up for City Bike. Biking is a great and fast way to see New York City and with city bike stations all over, you never have to worry about parking. It will probably work out cheaper than Ubering around town and you can save yourself a gym day because who really wants to do that when you're traveling? And if biking isn't really your thing, buy a MetroCard. Today, I realized a friend in town from LA was buying a single ride each time he took the subway over the weekend. Buy the card, it's only a dollar, and each ride is $2.75. Take a walk at dawn. Here's the secret, the city that never sleeps does slow down for a bit at that magic hour around 5 a.m. It's starting to be light out, but the sun hasn't risen. You might hear the purr of a street sweeper or see the occasional wanderer ending their night or commuter starting their day, but for the most part, the city feels like it's all yours.
1: That was Anaya Richards bringing you Around the World. (laughs) Natasha Nyanan is a storyteller and style icon. Like me, she grew up as a diplomat's daughter traveling the world.
6: I grew up mostly with my mother in Ghana. My father and my stepmother, however, lived all over the world. So I would spend my summers and my Christmases and, and time off with them. So I got that fixed sense of home in Ghana, growing up in my mother's household. But I also got to live in so many different countries. And from that, I got a transient sense of home, being in the Philippines and in Zambia and Zimbabwe and, um, and in the U.S. actually also.
1: Yeah. In what ways do you think that growing up between all these different countries made your childhood unique? Uh, so I was, at a young age, I was exposed to the culture of travel. I was exposed to
6: different cultures, and I was exposed to um, to this the sense that home isn't necessarily the place that you spend the most time. It's it's it can be many different things at at, uh, at different points in your life
1: yeah you know what like what's your definition of home? Ah, the definition of home that's an interesting one. um
6: there's a there's a quote from um Gustave Flaubert, I believe, where he says something about a country, not a country just basically being lines drawn on a map, and that that's not his sense of home. It's it's his sense of home or his country is where he dreams. And I thought that was quite a poetic way of expressing something that I'd been grappling with. My definition of home is is wherever I am in the moment where I feel. I feel connected to the place that I am, um, whether it's for two hours or it's for, you know, 12 years, like I lived in Atlanta. It's a very fluid and transient definition. But essentially, it's it's just wherever I,
1: wherever I feel inspired. What's the experience of like being a black woman that's not African-American and, and living in the United States?
6: One thing I say to my friends, uh, well, one of the conversations that sort of come up with some of my African-American friends, especially female friends is, there's a certain level of oblivion with which a black woman who is not African-American walks around the place and is not aware of ways in which one is discriminated against or, um, you know, that sort of thing. Because you don't come from a culture where you're a minority. I, can't, well, I come from Ghana, so I grew up as a majority.
1: Right. It's like everywhere where we come from, everybody looks like us.
6: Everybody looks like us. I remember one time a friend came with uh, an African-American friend came to Ghana with me and she gasped when we, we were driving home and she said, all the people on the billboards are black. And she was just so taken by that. It meant so much to her. And it was the first time that really sort of hit home for me that I was, um, in in a, in some respect, lucky to have grown up in the way that I did.
1: How um, do you think that living all around the world has really informed your own sense of style?
6: I think that one picks up, you know, different things from different places that they visit or that they've called home. Traveling all over certainly has made me more interested in people's, in in culture and how people express, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So the importance of different art forms in different cultures, if you will. And in Ghana, we joke that essentially you are allowed to uh, follow three career paths. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or of the fourth career path, which is a disgrace to your family. <laughs>
1: Uh, then I am following the fourth career path. <laughs> oh, and so am I. I. I I say
6: all the time that I exist as a disgrace to my family. But I think that uh, as much as the arts were a part of my, my upbringing, it was never a consideration that I could do anything with the arts as a career until maybe two or three years ago. I was working as a scientist at the CDC. So I think that living in Ghana probably limited my cultural outlook in that way Um, and then moving to the U.S. sort of expanded my horizons uh, career-wise.
1: That's amazing. Um, Do you feel kind of like a chameleon adapting to new locations or do you make your surroundings adapt more to you?
6: There's a certain, I guess there's a certain aspect of me that's unchanging. For instance, I'm if I go somewhere where I should be wearing flats, I will probably still be wearing heels. So in that way, my surroundings will have to adapt to me. But in general, I think it's important when one, one travels and one um, is visiting new areas to be open to adapting to the, not just to the place, but to the situation that one finds themselves in. I, I have a great story from... From Peru, I went to Peru on my own. I speak not a word of Spanish. Um, it was my first time in South America, and I was I was quite scared because I you know I didn't know what that was go- how that was going to turn out. But um I was walking up to Maras, which is the these salt ancient salt mines, and started to get a, a serious bout of vertigo. So I turned around and I ran into a man who was on a motorcycle, and for whatever reason, he struck up a conversation with me in broken spanish broken english and i told him where i was trying to go but that i couldn't walk up the hill and i'd never ridden a motorcycle before and he said well why don't you hop on i'll be your taxi so i get behind the sky with no helmet just completely you know this is one of the things about traveling you become somebody that you're not necessarily at home so i recklessly get behind the sky and we drive through the foothills of the andes all the way up to, to these salt mines. And it was the most beautiful experience that I could not have choreographed. And that required me to adapt to that situation. Um, it was a big lesson
1: for me. So I think a little bit of both to answer your question. That's great. You know, is there anything that you can't travel without? Oh, my goodness. Um, lots and lots of luggage. <laughs> really? Are you one of those people that you have, like, so much luggage? Oh, I am, I'm totally one of those people. I have so much luggage and I never want to pay for excess luggage. I mean, that's like African woman DNA, right? It's like watching our mom's Unpack our bags like at the airport and rearrange everything. Total African woman
6: DNA. Um, but I travel with uh, besides the luggage. I think it's probably my books and usually a book of poetry. Um, I mean I have a book with me right now actually, and I have a book called The Art of Travel by Alain de Botton that goes with me everywhere, and it's weathered and
1: it's it's you know it's been absorbed and read and reread. I have that book on my nightstand. I've had it for five years through like maybe six different apartments. And I still haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you really not? You absolutely should. It's really quite a
6: fantastic book. It really is.
1: Okay. Uh, Natasha, you are a delight. Where can people
6: find your work? You can find my, my website, it's natashanyanin.com. Um, my last name is spelled N-Y-A-N-I-N. My blog is The Ecstatic Flash. And you can also find me on YouTube, The Ecstatic Flash Show. And I'm working on a podcast that will be will hopefully be coming out very soon. It's called Get Up, Get Dressed, Get Naked.
1: Yes. Yes. Exciting stuff. Thank you so much, Natasha. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Delightful talking to you. You do the same. Let's bring it on home, team. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening to On She Goes, the podcast. Don't forget to check out OnSheGoes.com for more travel stories, tips, and inspiration. I'm your host, Amina Tuso. OnSheGoes is produced by me and Barry Finkel for Pineapple Street Media, in partnership with Sarita Wesley, Lizzie Harris, and Natalie Husenga for Wyden & Kennedy Publishing. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, Emily Becker, Lindsay Mavis, Sarah Fink, Marmoset, and APM. Bye, y'all!